Those last words that we just sang, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Aren't you thankful that that is true this evening? That the word of God stands true. Well, this evening we're continuing our Reformation conference that we began this morning. Uh, we have Paul Scharf with us. I just wanted to give another short introduction for those of you who were not here in Sunday school. He was here a little over a year ago uh, representing his ministry uh, with Friends of Israel. And uh, as we got talking one day at lunch, um, I came to recognize that, that he had a, a passion for the Reformation. So we started talking about having him come and, and do a conference. So we got this set up over a year ago. I've been looking forward to it uh, since then. I, I hope that, that you, since you have found out about it, have been looking forward to it as well. And I, I know that you will benefit from this. Uh, and so it, it, is, it continues tonight, uh, and then it will continue tomorrow night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night at 7 o'clock as well. So I'd encourage you, make plans to come. Uh, and to join us for that. Uh, so Paul, if you will come at this time. Thank you, Pastor. It is my privilege and honor to be with you, to speak to you about the Reformation during these days, and it's wonderful to be back with you this evening. And what a great group we have here. Praise the Lord for this time and opportunity to be in his house tonight. And uh, to be thinking about these important things. Here Luther stood, remembering the Reformation, as we approach tomorrow, October 31st, is Reformation Day. And if you don't know why that is, you will before you leave tonight, if you're, uh, if you're watching, okay? So uh, praise the Lord for that. Well, it's great to be back with you. I'll just, uh, as Pastor said, remind you, I am Paul Scharf, uh, serving with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. There's my webpage where you can always contact me, find all my resources, sign up for our email newsletter, etc. If you just uh, need something else yet to uh, make your Reformation Day full tomorrow, you can join me online at 11 o'clock. As Lord willing, I'll have the wonderful opportunity again to address the Sermon Audio uh, United Prayer Meeting. Uh, online that's held every day and I'll be the speaker tomorrow as the meeting begins and uh, I'll be sharing a message about the five solas which I touched on this morning and here's my latest column that connects uh, directly with our themes here and you can find that on my sermon audio page or at sharperiron.org and here's the book that I recommended um, to you this morning, which I have in front of me, I'll be using throughout the conference, Erwin Lutzer, Rescuing the Gospel, an Illustrated History of the Reformation, the Story and Significance of the Reformation. If you only buy one book in your lifetime on the Reformation, I would suggest that one and suggest that you use it to learn much more about the things we're discussing during these days. Well, it is a great privilege to be with you. Just want to throw in a couple uh, addenda here as we begin. I've had a couple of, uh, of questions today, and I just want to address them quickly before we get into our, our main subjects this evening. Um, how many of you know the Reformation leads to two, two wings, if you will, uh, two sections that develop really from the beginning, and that is Lutheran and Reformed. Now that gets 
tricky for if you have no background in this because you say, well, weren't they all reformed? It's the Reformation. No, the Lutheran are not reformed. Lutheran and reformed. Reformed is a technical term for those that follow first Zwingli and then Calvin. Okay, so out of the Reformation comes Lutheranism and reformed theology, the reformed church. Okay, that's putting a lot of things in a nutshell. But that's one thing I hope that you can uh, have in place as we go throughout these messages. Now, some, a couple of people have asked me, um, how does this fit with the Friends of Israel? Talking about the Reformation. Well, I think it fits well. It's certainly not our focus as a ministry, per se, uh, to be talking about the Reformation all the time. We talk about Israel all the time, and we tend to talk about Israel in prophecy a lot. And really the fact that God has a future for Israel. He's been with his chosen people of Israel from their biblical past. He's with them in the strategic present. He will be with them through the prophetic future and the fulfillment of every promise he's ever given to them. Uh, but all of history works together in God's plan. He's working all things after the counsel of his will. Uh, and so much, much like uh, Dr. Kober, who I mentioned this morning, who had a unique passion for teaching, uh, especially on the Reformation and tying it together to his whole worldview and theology, and, and he continues to do that, um, I have a similar passion that's built, as I said this morning, largely out of the fact I was raised originally confessional Lutheran, conservative Lutheran. And so uh, I have a great interest in these things and would like to continue to develop specifically not just knowing about the Reformation, but uh, trying to understand and even trying to delve further uh, into perhaps even what you know is largely unknown into how we as dispensationalists relate to the Reformation. And you remember that's the point of this very unique book I showed this morning that Pastor mentioned also, Forged from Reformation. <clears throat> we have a chapter in that book. It's a thick book that develops this whole subject. It's the only one of, of its kind that I know of. I'm privileged to be part of it. Uh, and I hope to continue to do more research in that realm. Um, and this is, so this is not uh, totally unique for the Friends of Israel, probably the greatest known teacher in the history of the Friends of Israel, Dr. Reynolds Showers. Anyone here remember him? He came to Faith's campus to do our, uh, our Bible conference when I was in seminary here at Faith and got to meet him there. That was a seed the Lord planted in my mind that ultimately led toward me serving with the Friends of Israel. He certainly had a great interest in church history and taught on these things as well. But it's not something that many of uh, everyone in Friends of Israel focuses on necessarily. But it's not, as I say, in any way opposed to, uh, I trust, our, our mission, our purpose, our teaching. I think it complements it. It's a unique passion of mine. And here's what I want to get to say. I believe God providentially has prepared me in my life to have this passion, uh, bringing me through my Lutheran background and uh, into the progress of how he has worked in my life is, to me, a microcosm of how church history has developed along the 
route that I'm talking about. From the Reformation to uh, dispensationalism. I, if that, I hope that makes sense to you. And it's sort of how I view God's work and what he's done for me and what he showed me and uniquely prepared me to have the, these interests. And so I hope they're a, they're a real um, addition to our ministry with the Friends of Israel, not any kind of a distraction. But I am fascinated with the Reformation and, as I said, with uh, still thinking further about how that fits, how the Reformation background ties to where we've come today by God's mercy. And, and also, I have a couple of uh, unique perspectives as a dispensationalist uh, on the Reformation, some of which I'll bring out in just a few minutes this evening, which you might not always hear from those who might more naturally talk a lot about the Reformation, and that is specifically, remember again where we started tonight, the Lutheran and the Reformed. They're the ones who talk lots about the Reformation and claim it as their heritage, and they may not bring out some of the things we're going to be considering, including those in just a moment. And uh, I'd like to say I think we have every right also, as the book Forged from Reformation uh, posits, to talk about the Reformation, to claim that as part of our heritage as well. So I hope that all makes sense. hope that answers kind of a couple of questions I've got today. If it's uh, clear as mud, see me afterward, and I'd be happy to try to explain further, all right? This morning, we one of the issues we uh, covered was the five solas of the Reformation, and we just sang about them in that wonderful new hymn, the Reformation Hymn. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, the glory of God alone, Scripture alone. And by now, from this morning, all of you know that the formal principle of the Reformation, that which gave form to the Reformation, is which of those? It's sola scriptura. It gives form. Luther was driven, you see. He initially, his concern was regarding issues of grace and faith, but he was, he was driven both internally but also externally by church authorities to say, you know, how can you be right? How, how can a thousand years of church history be wrong, Luther? How can you, one monk, be right and the rest of us be wrong? And Luther was driven to the point of saying it must be the scriptures alone that are our authority. The popes and councils have contradicted one another. Scripture alone. It's the formal principle. It gives the form to the Reformation. But really, Luther's first concern that satisfied his own conscience was the issue of faith alone. That's the material principle. That's the matter of the Reformation, the material principle of faith alone. Well, we've left off on this slide this morning where we'll pick up. And just quickly, we're still in some introductory matters, and then we're going to turn a corner here. But this is something we'll come back to later. And this is the kind of thing that you may not hear from a Lutheran or a Reformed teacher, that the Reformation indeed has a dark side. And um, I think there's been a lot more focus on this, and a lot more people are aware of some of these things. Um, there's really two, a two-pronged uh, dark side, and the two prongs are connected. Now, the first is what we would call, and I hate to even show this picture, but it's public information, um, and it's available by looking at the church there in Germany. This is from the church where 
Luther uh, preached his whole career in Wittenberg, which is not the castle church where he nailed the 95 Theses. This is called the town church or St. Mary's. And this is on the corner of the top of the church building. It's called a Judensau. It's a relief that is anti-Jewish. Um, it's really in incredibly insulting, uh, to say the least, to the Jewish people. You can see above the word rabbini, above there for rabbi. And it's a Jewish rabbi with a hog, a sow, and um, just um, incredibly um, uh, derogatory um, art, work of art. And you say, why in the world would someone put this on a church? Well, it, these are on churches all across Germany, all around at least Germany, if not Europe. This is just common. I mean, hatred of the Jewish people is just woven into the fabric of the history of Europe and the history of, church, of the church in Europe. I mean, the, the church culture, say nothing of the worldly culture, long before Luther. This was here for hundreds of years before Luther arrived. Now, he didn't have it chiseled out. He didn't put it there either. It's just there. And it remains there to this day. And when you go there and look at it, right down underneath it, there is a uh, anti-Nazi or a Holocaust remembrance uh, marker that's been placed there. The Jewish people, excuse me, the German people have done a good job since World War II of preserving all the history. We're not, we're not that wise in this country. We like to tear everything down, right? Uh, Jew, the German people haven't done that. They've preserved the good, the bad, and the ugly. Here it is, as we, you know, as it stands today, some of it was, you know, destroyed in World War II and so forth, but, but they tend to leave things, preserve them, keep them in place so you can go back and look and see this is what happened. So this is the church where Luther preached, and this is this anti-Jewish uh, artwork, relief, whatever you want to call it, and, uh, and it's not in any way unique. And it was there long before Luther arrived. But again, Luther did not solve the problem of anti-Jewish hatred in the Middle Ages, nor was he by any means unique in that way at all. We're going to come back at the end of the conference and talk more about some of this. Um, because a question that maybe even is on your mind is, did Luther cause the Holocaust? Well, uh, here you see, this is from a placard from uh, one of the museums that we toured, uh, a dark chapter, Luther and the Jews. And we're going to talk about these things later in more depth, but here's a horrible, horrible thing that Luther could even say something that even if misquoted out of context could be used by who? Adolf Hitler. And so... We're going to talk about that, and uh, and I think that we we need to we need to uh, look at these things in context using uh, just standards and trying to understand what actually was happening, uh, not in our context, not out of their context, not in any way to excuse the some of the horrible things Luther said 
but to really understand what was going on and to evaluate it properly. And uh, we'll get to that probably on Wednesday evening. Now, the other uh, prong of the dark side of the Reformation um, would be the issue related to what would this point us toward? We don't have many, many uh, ex-Lutherans or Catholics here, do we? This would be a Baptist, a baptismal font, okay? By the way, Luther obviously baptized infants, but he immersed infants. He did not sprinkle. And uh, this is the baptistry from, I believe, from St. Mary's Church there in Wittenberg, where Luther preached. I'm not sure if this, that this is as old as Luther's time, but it reminds us of the issue. What do you think would be the other side of the dark side of Halloween? In addition to Luther and the Jewish people, it would be Luther and the... What, what, what do you think of with baptism? Who would it be? Those who do not baptize their children, who would those be? The Anabaptists, okay? Well, here's one Anabaptist. We'll come back and look at his story more later. Uh, Fritz Erba. You've never heard of him. He was a farmer. He was jailed in this uh, rather nice, (laughs) for a jail cell, I guess, in uh, Eisenach for, you can see there, seven years, 1533 to 1540. That's during Luther's life. Uh, But he was preaching through the window to people who could hear him. So he was moved to a really awful place, uh, ironically in the Vortberg Castle. Now this is a picture, just taking my phone and taking a picture up the steps. There's a South Tower, there's a North Tower at the Vortberg Castle. The only regret I have from our trip to Germany is I did not go to the very top of the South Tower. I wasn't sure I had time. So I just pointed my camera up and took this picture. But why were we in the South Tower? Well, the reason is is kind of awful. It's because Fritz Erba, when he was taken from that uh, room in Eisenach, he was taken, and this is almost uh, another horrible picture here. Uh, That's one of our speakers and tour leaders, Dr. James White, and he is standing above this sort of cage-looking thing, and what you're looking at goes down about maybe 30 feet into this muddy soup where Fritz Erba lived in that soup for eight more years as punishment for what? Refusing to have his children baptized in Lutheran lands. You say, what in the world? And we're hailing Luther as some kind of hero here tonight? Well, again, it's not excusable, but it has to be understood in context. And uh, we're going to ask some probing questions about that. And uh, I don't know if it's going to make you more comfortable or, or more uncomfortable when we're all done. But it ought to end up causing us to, to think through you know, our own um, stance and uh, ask the question, well, what would I have done if I were in Luther's shoes? Would I have done better? And we'll get to that point of asking some of those hard questions as we go later. Uh, and there's something that you have to, if you're going to understand any of this, you have to understand that these two issues are absolutely united. Uh, 
What would the Jewish people and the Anabaptists have in common? Well, it's this common element. Neither one would what? Would have their children baptized. Oh, having your child baptized is how you bring your child into society in the 16th century in German. I mean, in Germany. I mean, that's sort of like... Um, you know, having a baby born today and registering them and getting them, you know, ultimately social security number, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. If you that all of that was accomplished in the 16th century by having the, your child baptized and they enter church and society in in one quick act of baptism. If you're not going to be baptized, oh. That's, a, that's a, putting yourself in a whole different category, you see? And Luther did not create this system. It existed for a thousand years, and nobody had ever thought of doing anything differently than this up until this time. You start to see and understand maybe how this is a little more complicated than it appears on the surface. So we're going to talk about those things. And let's keep this in mind as well. Uh, how many are glad... And grateful as we sang tonight, it's not what we've accomplished, it's the grace of God working in each of our lives. You know, that's true of Luther and the Reformers. Uh, he, he, he did not attain this position of being the Reformer because he was worthy before God. Again, he would be the first to tell us that. And what does Paul say about all this? Not many wise according to the flesh are called. Not many noble, not many mighty. And we could say that about Luther. If you were going to start a reformation, frankly, uh, probably one of the last people you would ever pick would be Martin Luther. But God used Luther. So again, what we want to grapple with this. What really happened and how does it affect us down to our time? Not a comic book version, not what we wish could have happened or the way I imagine it might have happened, but what really happened. And we're going to think about that right now, what really happened 505 years ago on October 31st. We're going to think about that this evening. That'll be our main focus for the next few minutes. So if you cannot be with us the rest of the week, you won't have just only background all day today. We're going to talk about why we're celebrating tomorrow, October 31st, and then we'll go on uh, into, we'll sort of back up and then go through the whole story chronologically after that. But what happened 505 years ago on October 31st that's, that causes us to remember and to celebrate today the grace of God here on October 31st? Well, October 31st, truly it is All Hallows' Eve, that's a historical fact, that's what our culture celebrates, now known as Halloween, and the, a lot of the celebrations, a lot of the uh, customs that we have in our culture from Halloween go back hundreds of years to beyond even me medieval Europe, and uh, some of them really relate to some very awful uh, things, quite frankly. We're not going to delve into that right now. But it was All Hallows' Eve because November 1st is All Saints' Day. <clears throat> and uh, here you see... Just a little reminder of uh, what worship might entail on All Saints Day. That's from a cathedral in, 
in Erfurt that we'll come back to a little later. But the fact is, on All Saints Day, it's a day to remember and even to pray to the saints and to glorify the saints who lived such virtuous lives, like, uh, for instance, the Virgin Mary, that in Roman Catholic theology, they had more righteousness than they ever needed. So they didn't have to worry about uh, purgatory or indulgences. In fact, they built up so much merit before God by taking the grace, and again, I'm speaking not here of myself, but of what the Roman church taught, that uh, they took the grace of God that he had infused within them and did such wonderful works that merited his, his favor beyond what they would need themselves so that it built up a treasury of merit, which can be like a bank account. You can sort of draw on that if you have the right mechanism for doing so. Of course, the, the Pope... The successor of Peter holds the keys to that kingdom. And so mechanisms are put in place to that you and I, a common peasant, not a saint, we would have our day on November 2nd, All Souls Day. Uh, and, but we, the common peasants uh, of the land, could even partake of that treasury of merit if we obey the teachings of the church and follow according to the rituals that are prescribed. Well, here we have uh, in where Luther is located, and we'll get him there later. As I said, we'll back up and, and tell the whole story. But here on October 31st, 1517, Luther is in Wittenberg, Germany. He's a professor at the University of Wittenberg, which has been around about 15 years, started by Elector Frederick the Wise of Saxony, Elector over uh, Saxony. Uh, Luther also preaching at the town church, St. Mary's Church. He's a monk, uh, professor of theology, doctor of theology, and a priest uh, preaching in the church there in Wittenberg. And Frederick, who lived from 1463 to 1525, is the elector of Saxony. He's called Frederick the Wise. I believe that we will see him in heaven. So you want to learn all that you can about him. If there had never been a Frederick, you'd never have even heard the name Martin Luther. Now, Frederick was all his Super Bowl Sunday of every year was November 1st in Wittenberg. Okay, Why? Because Frederick had 19,000 relics in his personal collection. And, of course, for a small fee... You can see these relics. Now, not you and I, peasants, farmers like us, uh, but, you know, on November 1st, it was open to the elite class, the professors, the priests, uh, the noblemen, and they could come into the castle church on November 1st and see the relics for, of course, a price. You put your uh, you put your coin in the box, and you can take the tour, and you can take, if you could see all 19,000 relics, you could take literally more than 10,000 years off your time in purgatory. How many would want to do that? I mean, 10,000, 12, 15,000 years off your time by looking at things like uh, a strand of Mary's hair, uh, a piece of the diaper of the baby Jesus, uh, a sliver of wood from the true cross, uh, 
And uh, there were some rather sarcastic folks who said that, you know, if, there, if all the wood that would claim to be from the cross of Christ were, re, were authentic, you could build a ship with that amount of wood, or you could construct a cross so high that you couldn't see the top of it, you know. But these are the kinds of things they had. These are the, the relics that they, they had available to view. Now, we're going to meet an interesting character here for the first time. He is the Reformation Pope, Pope Leo X. He is uh, selected in 1513, and Pope Leo X, this is his most famous saying, sort of summed up his whole career. He said, God has given us the papacy. Let us enjoy it. And that just sort of struck the tone for his whole time in office. And quoting from Lutzer's book here, he says, Catholic historian Ludwig von Pastor declared that, quote, the ascent of this man, Leo X, in an hour of crisis to the chair of St. Peter was one of the most severe trials to which God ever subjected his church, end quote. Uh, a woman named uh, Barbara Tuckman wrote a famous book called The March of Folly. And here's what she said about Pope Leo and, uh, and those around him. She said these Renaissance six, the Renaissance six popes, possessed no sense of spiritual mission, provided no meaningful religious guidance, provided, performed no moral service for the Christian world. All right, what do you think of Leo so far? God has given us the papacy. Let us enjoy it. Okay, this is the man who's going to have to deal with Martin Luther. And Leo is a builder. He is trying to build something that you still see on the news on a regular basis, which is St. Peter's Basilica. Uh, the old basilica had been condemned. It was falling to pieces. Time to build a new basilica. And there was a tremendous opportunity to move on that because there was a man named Albrecht of Mainz who before he was even of legal age to do so held two bishoprics. And he wanted to do something else which was forbidden, that was to have a third one. You say, why, why, would you want to, why would you want to be a bishop and have three bishoprics? Oh, because you get to do what? Tax the landowners. This is an incredible money-making opportunity to own a bishopric. So Albrecht of Mainz sets his sights on, on obtaining a third bishopric. And the Pope says, Albrecht, that's going to cost you a pretty penny to get a third bishopric at your young age. There's going to be a very expensive variance and in fact, it was uh, settled uh, to be 10,000 ducats, which is around a million and a half dollars for Albrecht to pay the variance to obtain the bishopric. Well, they struck a deal. Albrecht got a loan from the Fugger's Bank, paid the money to the Pope, but here was part of the fine print of the deal. Uh, Albrecht will have the opportunity to sell, what do you think, to, to repay that loan. He's going to have the opportunity to sell indulgences. So really, it's not going to cost him anything if he can 
get these indulgence business going. The money's going to flow in. He's going to pay off the loan. Oh, but the Pope said there will be one more thing, Albrecht. I get half of the sale of the indulgences as well as the whole principle. So it's kind of a nice deal for the Pope, you know, trying to build St. Peter's. And so he got the, the whole amount, and he's going to get half of all the indulgence. Okay, fine. It's going to take twice as long, twice as many indulgences to pay all this off, right? But they agree to all of this, and Pope, ben, uh, Pope Leo says, I've got your man, Albrecht. We talked about him this morning. What's his name? Johann Tetzel. Remember him? The prosperity preacher, the... You know, the white suit, the golden hair, that's how I think of him anyway. He comes around and he, he was a spellbinding uh, preacher. He, I mean, he had all the giftedness that, he could, that you could imagine. In fact, um, t- the Pope's ultimately going to give him an honorary doctor of theology. Uh, he would come into town, he would place, put that cross in the ground nail the indulgence to it and say this cross is of the very value of the cross of Jesus Christ. And he would give these emotional appeals to people describing purgatory, saying, you know, it, it, it was as if he was speaking in terms of your relative, your loved one being in the fires of hell. And he would preach and he would say, you miserable you people disgust me that you are you can virtually hear your loved one crying from the fi- from the flames and you are so stingy as to not simply purchase an indulgence would re- which would release them from their suffering and he would go on like this and he would be, get very emotional very accusatory in his tone. And then he would give the altar call. And he would say, now, for just a pence, when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And he would call the people forward. And they would give their money to this cause. Luther, at this time, was not convinced of what he thought about the doctrine of purgatory, which which was a very ancient teaching of the church, or even of indulgences. But he knew something was wrong with the way this was being handled, and he began to be infuriated. If you watch the new Luther movie from 2003, I believe it is, how many have seen that? I would encourage you to watch it if you haven't. Uh, Major production from, from... back then there's a scene in there perhaps apocryphal but a a little girl is pictured running up to Martin Luther saying Father Father Martin Father Martin and she is so proud to show him this indulgence paper and here I believe it was something like her dying mother you know her family was in total poverty and they spent their last pennies on this indulgence paper And Luther became furious. The story is told, and this perhaps is true, or or at least it represents something that may have really happened, is Luther was one Sunday on his way to church, 
and he encountered a man drunken lying in the ditch. And uh, he began to rebuke the man. Here you are drunken on the Lord's day, on the Sabbath, you know, is what he probably said. And this man was sober enough to pull out his indulgence paper and show it to Father Martin. And Luther became infuriated. He was absolutely overwhelmed. Now, Tetzel was not allowed in Wittenberg. Why? Because Elector Frederick, I said we're going to see him in heaven. Well, maybe he's in, maybe he's opposed to indulgence. Well, he was imposed to indulgences because he had his own at this point. He had his own program. Okay? So he had his own indulgence plan. So if you live in Saxony, you have two indulgence options. You have Frederick's plan, or you have Tetzel's plan, which was for anyone and everyone, the common man, could just cross the Elbe River and go see Tetzel when he came close to town. And here is Frederick's picture painted by Lucas Cranach. If you ever visit Wittenberg, Wittenberg, you'll see the name Cranach all around town uh, and his family symbol. Lucas Cranach. If there had never been a Lucas Cranach, you would know very little about Martin Luther as well. He was the printer and the painter of the Reformation and of Luther. And his son, by the same name, also follows in his trade. Lucas Cranach's painting of Frederick. So what did Luther do? He came on October 31st, 1517... Now, his convictions were not completely settled. His theology certainly was not completely settled at this point. Remember, he is a professor. What is he doing when he nails the 95 Theses to the castle church door on October 31st, 1517? Well, we could say it like this. He was requesting to see uh, or, to, or to be involved in, more properly, uh, something like Michigan Ohio State football game, okay? You say what? What are you talking about? Well, they didn't have football back then in uh, medieval Germany, but they had debates. Luther is calling. Luther is representing the University of Wittenberg, and he is putting something provocative out there. Now, by the way, he had posted a listing of theses a month earlier, much more provocative that just went nowhere. Nobody even knows about them, hardly. But he posted these 95 theses here on October 31st, and they focus on these issues of indulgences and grace and faith and repentance. In fact, the very first of the indulgences lists this issue that sets the, the tone for all of them. He said, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. You see, Luther had discovered that the Latin Vulgate, the accepted translation for a thousand years, and the official translation of the church, translated the word repent as do penance. He came to realize that was erroneous. And he came to realize the importance of salvation by grace alone, by faith alone. We'll, we'll get in tomorrow night, Lord willing, to the whole background, the whole story of how Luther gets here and the internal struggles and the, the issues that he went through. 
But he has, he has come by this point to believe on the basis of Romans 1, 16 and 17, that the gospel reveals a righteousness that God will supply to the believer who trusts in Christ by faith alone, from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So maybe you're even here tonight and you have never personally trusted in Jesus Christ. You can be saved tonight and be in heaven with him forever. Have your sins forgiven if you will trust that he, the eternal son of God, became also a man, died on the cross, in your place for your sin, rose again. And you come to him, to Christ alone, and trust in him and receive his grace alone by faith alone. Christ for us, not Christ working in us so that we can merit the favor of God. And Luther came to understand this. He, says, he said when he did that it was as if he had entered through the gates into paradise. Romans 1, 16 and 17. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. But Luther wanted to share these things. He wanted a debate. He wanted a scholarly debate. See, this is what they did for entertainment. The faculty of one uh, university would uh, go to meet another. This is Michigan, Ohio State. See, only in a different format. They would go to meet a diff. They would go to meet the faculty of a different university, and they'd spend the whole day debating. And then they would share a meal. They'd all get drunk, and they'd have a drunken bash in the street to uh, end the day. They thought that was great fun. And this is what Luther's asking for. Let's have a debate on these 95 theses. Now, he wrote them in Latin. It's not for the common man. By the way, this is not where we get the word protest or Protestant. That doesn't come in until 1529. Although we could say Luther was protesting, but that's not the basis of that term. But Luther hung the theses here on the castle church door in Wittenberg. Here are some sites of the castle church as it is today. You see the spire with the words of the hymn we just sang, a mighty fortress going around. Ein Festeberg ist unser Gott. Here's the interior of the church. It's really an amazing place to visit. Um, here's the high pulpit above, uh, as we'll see in a moment, Luther's statue and Luther's actual grave that they, um, uh, many, many places in, in Germany and Europe in the medieval centuries, buried people inside places like churches. So there's many, many different uh, people buried inside this castle church that have remained there to this day. But here is the high pulpit. Here is the altar at the front. Here is, as I said, this Luther statue. He's overlooking the pulpit. Here is Luther's grave where they put fresh roses every day at the castle church. Now here is Luther posting the theses on October 31st, 1517. And he is, the, the, the tenor, the tone of these 95 theses is again in re reaction to Tetzel and the abuses that Luther is, is seeing and the problems he is seeing with all of this. And uh, here is one also that thesis number 82. He is starting to question things uh, in a, at a very profound level. Here's what he says. Why does not the Pope empty purgatory 
for the sake of holy love and the dire need of the souls that are there if he redeems an infinite number of souls for the sake of miserable money with which to build a church? See, he's starting to question these things. He's, there's mixed message about the Pope. Part of it is, why, if the Pope knew what Tetzel was doing, of course, Luther doesn't realize the Pope has sent Tetzel out. If the Pope knew what Tetzel was doing, he'd be furious. You know, and then other times he's sort of questioning the Pope. Wow, why doesn't the Pope just do this for the sake of holy love instead of miserable money, if that's what we're doing here? But it's going to build a, the St. Peter's Basilica as the purpose of the money. Luther posts the theses in Latin. Now, why does he post them on the church door? Is that an act of protest? No, that's the bulletin board. Uh, that's like putting something on Facebook, okay? Why does he do it on October 31st? Because the elite class, the scholars, will be coming to the Castle Church November 1st, Super Bowl day, right, to see the 19,000 relics. That's All Saints Day. So on October 31st, he posted in Latin. Guess what those guys behind him are going to do, though? They, they are his students who pull the theses down without Luther's permission, translate them into German, run them across the printing press, start sending them out everywhere, and before anybody knows what's going on, the least of all Martin Luther, he is what we would call a rock star. I mean, he is all of a sudden in the limelight <laughs> and on, ultimately on the Pope's radar, on the Emperor's radar, all these things, okay? And so things are going to start happening very, very quickly. And this is where it's going to force Luther, you know, by people literally sticking their finger to his nose and saying, how can you be right and a thousand years of church history be, be wrong? And Luther's forced to, the, to develop his convictions ultimately to say, it's by scripture alone. I stand on the holy word of God, the scriptures alone. Now, we're, we need to end this evening. I'd like to just cover these next things fairly quickly uh, so that tomorrow night we can really go through Luther's life and have a lot of our background behind us. And we don't have to get through all of them, but we'll, let's just think about uh, how did we get to the events of October 31st, 1517. I'd like to cover at least a couple of them and we'll be done. Remember there were some precursors of the Reformation, early dissenters and radicals. Um, and so Luther is not the very first to begin to question some of these things or to espouse some of the beliefs that he had. There were these earlier lights of the Reformation. Lutzer says of them their success was limited and generally confined to local areas or a few specific issues. And yet their attempts weakened the stranglehold that the church had on the masses and paved the way for Luther. And we, you know, get above Luther and we realize again, God is working all these things after the counsel of his own will for his purposes. Uh, one you may have heard of is Peter Waldo. He was an interesting character back in the 12th century uh, who uh, was ultimately excommunicated by the Pope for preaching as a layman 
Uh, and he basically uh, disavowed all earthly wealth and gave his substance to the poor and had various concerns that, uh, that attracted the attention of Rome, but he had a few followers called the Waldenses. But um, this is really too early in history for reasons we'll probably have to get to tomorrow night, for reasons you know, that, that we'll think about for the, the Reformation to begin. Now, now one man, you know, we said that we began tonight talking about God is not called the mighty and the noble and the wise. Well, one man who was a lot more mighty and noble and wise than Luther, this is John Wycliffe. And he's really one of the heroes of history. And he lives in the 14th century during just a horrendous time for the Catholic Church. And he begins to uh, very seriously, strenuously question the issue of papal authority, transubstantiation. How can, if bread, if, if bread and wine can be turned into the body and blood of Christ, and they're actually the only the body and blood of Christ, and no bread or wine remain, but all I see is bread and wine. If this is true, Wycliffe said, then no one can know anything about reality. If that's true, then we cannot know reality. Because you're looking at bread and wine, which is not bread and wine. And he begins to question these things. And he really, in a very early phase, begins to teach sola scriptura, scripture alone. And he wants to have an English translation of the scriptures, which he begins. But it's not from the Hebrew and Greek. It's only from the Latin into English, from the Latin Vulgate. Um, and Wycliffe is ultimately, uh, he, he, not, he dies a peaceful death. He's the leading theologian of his day. And he dies peacefully, but his body is exhumed. And he is... Uh, uh, his bones are burned and cast into the river Swift at the Council of Constance, which met from 1414 to 1418. And so Wycliffe is posthumously uh, excommunicated in the strongest way by the church. Now at that same council, there was another man, and this is now, we're getting closer to the Reformation, and we're getting closer to some things that are really going to touch on the life of Luther. So I hope you can keep them in the back of your mind for tomorrow night. Uh, Jan Hus was in what's modern-day Czechoslovakia, or that's not the current name, Bohemia back then. He was a reformer who began to take things a little further, and he uh, was accused and charged with the crime of, he was called, Wycliffeism. You're a Wycliffeite. You're a follower of John Wycliffe. So the same council, the Council of Constance, that posthumously condemned Wycliffe, condemns Hus, only Hus is alive to be burned at the stake. Now, let me tell you a real quick story. The emperor at this time is a man named Sigismund. His half-brother is the king over Bohemia, where uh, Hus is located. Is that the right word? Am I getting confused? Anyway, uh, over what would become Czechoslovakia and these lands, Prague uh, is where Hus is located. Um, the king there is Sigismund's half-brother. His name is Wenceslas. Does that ring a bell with anyone? 
Only this is not the good King Wenceslas, this is the bad King Wenceslas. This is a, an earlier ancestor of the man we sing about at Christmas time. Okay? So the bad King Wenceslas uh, counsels Hus because Sigismund, his half brother, who's the Holy Roman Emperor, has said, Hus, come to the Council of Constance. Now, this is very important later for Luther. Come to the Council of Constance, I will give you safe passage. In other words, you can come, regardless of what happens if your heresy trial, you can go back in safety as well. Ha, ha, ha. Nice thought, right? Wenceslas says, you better go, Hus. He goes to the Council of Constance. He's tried as a heretic. He's found to be a heretic. He's a Wycliffeite. He's teaching against papal authority, teaching uh, about grace and faith, and uh, teaching against some of the uh, abuses of the church. And so he is found guilty. And of course, once you're found guilty as a heretic, you don't have to keep your promise to a heretic, right? So the safe passage is pulled back, and Hus is condemned to be burned at the stake. And that happens on July 6, 1415. Now notice what he said as he is, is burned and killed. Legend has it that he stated these words, Today you will roast a lean goose. The word, the name Hus meant goose in Hus's native Czech language. He said, today you will roast a lean goose, but a hundred years from now you will hear a swan song. Him you will leave unroasted. No trap or net will catch him for you. Who comes around about a hundred years after this? Who do you think claimed to be the swan? Have you ever gone into a Lutheran church and seen some uh, architecture or, or furniture or a stained glass window of a swan? It goes back to this. We call it Huss's prophecy, although it's not a biblical prophecy in the sense of supernatural revelation. But it's uh, certainly one of the most amazing uh, statements ever made in church history. And it has... Uh, it dovetails into Luther's life in, a mo in some most amazing ways beyond what I've just stated that you'll have to come back and see. We'll have to pick up there. We'll begin tomorrow night, Lord willing, with this. Before there could be a reformation, you had to have. Okay, and it will just, this won't take long, and then we're going to go right into the whole life of Luther and the whole story of the Reformation. Before there could be a reformation, you had to have a few things. You couldn't begin it with... Peter Waldo, way too early. He couldn't begin it with Wycliffe. Oh, he'd have been the perfect candidate. We'd have all picked him. You know, if, if we were God, heaven forbid, we'd pick Wycliffe to start this whole thing. No, it's too early. Not even Hus. It's still too early. Before you could have a Reformation, what do you have to have? We'll find out tomorrow night. God bless you until then. May the Lord uh, keep us. And Father, we pray that you will bless our time the rest of this week and that you will use all these things for your glory and for our good and help us to understand more of how you have worked in history providentially to bring us 
even to the point where we are in our lives today. I pray that you'll bless and help us tomorrow to think and give some time to thinking about the importance of this day in history, October 31st. By your grace alone, in Jesus' name, amen.